Hey, buddy, what you doing? Is it Christmas yet? No, sorry, not yet. I can't wait for Christmas. Yeah, I can't wait for Christmas either. In fact, let's celebrate now. <laughs> Welcome to the Can't Wait for Christmas podcast. <laughs> it's December 15th, 2017, and that means there's just 10 days left until Christmas. Today, we're finally going to reveal how you voted in the great Die Hard debate. Then, we're going to talk about a movie that is definitely synonymous with Christmas. We'll share a fun way to show a little love to all the delivery folk who are working so hard this time of year, and we'll take a look at five different ways to make snowflakes. Okay, Christmas is coming soon. Let's start the show! Welcome to the show! I hope you're having as much fun celebrating the season as I have been. My family and I went to a gingerbread house decorating event at our local church, and I discovered two things. First is that a three-year-old and a six-year-old would much rather eat the candy than stick it on a house made of gingerbread. The second is that the tube of icing they give you to stick everything together on the gingerbread house is delicious when you squirt it straight into your mouth. Yeah, I said straight into your mouth. Don't judge me. It's Christmas time. Proper dietary decisions is a January game. Come on already. Hey, imaginary listener, that sounds kind of like Kermit the Frog. What's going on? You're going on and on and on and on. You know what people tuned in for. Why don't you get to it? You're right. People want to know where they can catch more Tim Babb in the next couple weeks. What? I'll be appearing at Rooster Tea Feathers Comedy Club in Sunnyvale, California on December 22nd at 9 p.m. to help kick off their annual Home for the Holidays shows. There's a link to get tickets in the show notes at can'twaitforchristmaspod.com. I'll also be doing a guest spot on the Mousetalgia podcast on their December 18th episode. It's always fun to hang out with those guys, and they let me bring my Five Golden Things feature over to their show for a day. And speaking of bringing my shenanigans to other people's shows, I'll be hosting two separate hours of Kringle Radio's legendary Christmas Eve broadcast. From December 23rd through Christmas, the folks at Kringle Radio track Santa's journey around the world, and in between, we get to play all the Christmas music we can. And I get to host on December 23rd from noon till 1 Pacific Time, and Christmas Eve from noon to 1, again, Pacific Time. I'm going to sneak some favorites from the podcast in there, including Arnold Schwarzenegger's epic version of Silent Night. Again, links for all that stuff will be in the show notes of this episode. Tim, that's not what I meant. You know what people want to hear. Why not just do it now? Oh, right. People want our first segment. We need a little Christmas. Now! No, I'm talking about Die Hard! We need a little Christmas now. Since we're smack dab in the middle of December, you don't have to work too hard to get a little Christmas in your life. In fact, it's harder to avoid it. But what about spreading a little cheer to other people? Specifically, to the delivery folks from the post office, UPS, or FedEx, or the rest of Santa's little helpers coming to your door this season. I saw a tip on Facebook, and I thought it was a great idea. Someone put a cardboard box on their front porch. They filled it with water bottles, bags of chips, and what looked like granola bars. On the box, there was a sign that said, Please take some goodies while you're on your route. Thank you for making my holiday shopping easier. Merry Christmas. I saw that, and I said, Yes! I am totally doing that, but I wondered if it was the best combo of snacks, so I posted this to the Can't Wait for Christmas Facebook page and asked for opinions from delivery folk. Thankfully, listener Mary, who is also a delivery folk, responded with, Personally, I would like crackers, chips, and salty snacks. Sometimes I get overloaded with sweets. I also love the occasional cold water or Gatorade in the summer. 
Thanks, Mary. I'll be sure to equip my box with some salty options. But then my wife saw the picture and was aghast that there was no chocolate in there. So I'm going to have some chocolate too. I'm glad to do anything to thank the people who allow me to get my loved ones the gifts they want while still sitting on my fat hiney. Well, okay, that was a great tip, but that's still not what people are waiting for. You're so right. I should just give the people what they want. Thank you! Clearly, they want me to get to the top five list. You're doing this on purpose, aren't you? Yeah, you're actually making it take longer. I was going to announce the diehard results at the very start, but I enjoy watching you get frustrated. That doesn't sound very Christmassy. You're right. I'm sorry. It's fine. Just tell me what the results are. All right. Well, here are the results of what I picked for today's five golden things. For this list, we turn to our good friends at allthingschristmas.com. This is a wonderful website filled with Christmas news, reviews, ideas, and all sorts of great Christmas info. They posted an article a while back about their favorite Christmas podcast, and we made the list. In fact, we've gotten quite a few visitors thanks to that article. So I thought it only fair to return the favor and send them some love. Specifically, they recently posted an article about Christmas crafts that you can make with your kids. They found five different ways to make snowflakes, so it fits perfectly with this feature. But in order to talk about these properly, I gotta leave the Christmas cave. Wait, you're leaving? Yeah! If you're gonna review kids' craft ideas, who better to help than some genuine kids? And I know two adorable ones that are in the house. BRB. Dude, you are way too old to say BRB. And yet, I totes just said it. Totes? Totes my goats. Ugh. <laughs> okay, into the house. Oh, it's much warmer in here. Hang on, let me switch on my house mic. What's right. going on? Well, first of all, I should say who I'm here with. I'm here with James. Say hi, James. And say, I'm here with Michael. Say hi, Michael. Hi, guys. (laughs) So, uh, you guys are going to help me talk about these uh, craft ways of making snowflakes. You're going to tell me what you think, if you'd like to try them, and if you think it'd be fun. You ready? Okay. All right. Number five. Popsicle stick snowflakes. So, this one, you take popsicle sticks, and they're colored all different colors. Like, what colors are they? Blue, red, green, yellow, and did I say them all? There you got them all. Red. You said red, yeah. And then you glue lo- looks like little jewels on them, or little snowflake pieces, or uh, cotton balls. Yeah, that, that sounds fun. That sounds fun. Cool. What do you think, James? <laughs> Number four. All right, the next one is a handprint snowflake. So you take a blue piece of paper, and then you get you get some paint, and you paint your hand white, and then you smack your hand on the paper and it leaves a handprint behind and you do it one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times and it goes in around in a circle and when you're done doing it, like so you keep your palm in the circle and you keep turning your hand you keep your palm in the center and keep turning your hand around in a circle and when you're done it makes a snowflake on the piece of paper. What do you guys think of that one? Oh Michael, what do you think? Mm. <laughs> James, what do you think? Nah. <laughs> Alright. Number three. The next one is, what is this called? Wooden clothespin snowflake. So, you know what a clothespin is, right? Yeah. James, you know what a clothespin is? Now, you don't know this, but clothespins actually used to be used to hang up clothes, not just our art projects in the living room. Mm-hmm. So what you do is you take apart the, uh, the clothespin, and then you glue them together, and it looks like you cover them with paint and glitter. And then you glue them together in a snowflake shape. What do you think of that? Cool, that sounds fun. That sounds fun. <laughs> okay. Number two. Then we got snowflake felt garland. So, uh, 
Do you guys know what felt is? Oh, it's like it's like it's like paper, but it's soft and it's kind of like your coat. Yes, it's yes. That's very good. So yeah, it's like it's basically like fabric, yeah. but it, and it's kind of not almost fuzzy, but it's yeah. It's like it's it, you lay it out in like a sheets of paper, and so you cut out uh, patterns of snowflakes, and then you glue them on this string, and then you can hang them up places. Cool. That sounds fun. That sounds like you put jewels, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. Yes, Michael pointed out you put jewels in the center of the snowflakes. Number one. Paper plate yarn snowflakes. So you take a uh, paper plate, flip it over on the back. And then you take different colors of yarn and glue them. You just take little strands of yarn and you glue them into snowflake patterns on the back. I thought you put hole, put hole, put. Uh, oh, you're right. I think Michael's right. Da, 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 da. Yeah, it looks like you have to actually poke holes and then run the yarn through the plate. Nice eye, Michael. Thanks. That sounds cool and fun. And I think, yeah, that's the last one. So which one was your favorite? Um, it's hard to say, but my favorite was the the one. Um, it looked really. I have two actually. Okay. The one that we just saw. The 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 plates. Yeah, and um, the not that one. That one, yeah, that one too. The clothespins. Yeah. James, did you have a favorite? No, I like the the. Yeah, I like that one. You like the handprint one? Uh-huh. Even though you said nah at the time, but you actually liked it? Uh-huh. Yeah, that's okay. Oh, wait. What? Before we're done. Honorable mentions. Michael had a, had a way, he wanted to talk about his, uh, he, he has a way to make snowflakes. Yeah. All right. Um, you, take a, you take a blank piece of paper, you fold it in half to make a rectangle, and then you fold it again to make a smaller square, and then cut out shapes, and then unfold it, and then you got yourself a snowflake. (laughs) Very nice. Well, thank you, Michael. Thank you, James, for helping me talk about these kid crafts. And uh, if you want to go check them out, they're at allthingschristmas.com, and there's a link at can'twaitforchristmaspod.com. Don't you do that? Yeah, that's my website. That's my podcast website. All right, boys, good night. Daddy's going back to the Christmas cave. Bye. Okay, now can you please... Yes, yes, we're gonna talk about Die Hard. Finally! In so much as it's mentioned in this feedback from our last show. Messages from listeners everywhere. Feedback on our last show. Feedback on our last show. Now, technically, our last show was the House of Seven Santas Christmas podcast crossover bonus episode. Hmm, that's a mouthful. Yeah, you're telling me. Anyway, from the tweets and the Instagrams, it seems like you dug it, so we'll try and do something similar next year. But this feedback is actually from episode 30, the Die Hard episode. It's a pair of comments from Dwayne who says, Tim, I have to say, this is one of my favorite episodes. I also love the other podcasts injecting their thoughts on Die Hard. I actually mentioned to Tiz the Podcast about getting you in their show to almost about Disney as they love Disney too. I'm going to guess he actually meant to say getting you on their show to talk about Disney as they love Disney too. But basically, I get his main point. They love Disney. I love Disney. We should get together and Disney sometime. I'm down for it, Tis the Podcast. Let's make that happen. But anyway, back to Dwayne's comment. I can't wait for the 1st of December to hear the collaboration episode. I'll share it on my Merry Christmas NZ Facebook page. Are you going to be the host? Ooh. Well, I guess I should have answered this before the episode came out. 
Yeah, you're having a real hard time getting around to things. Well, I was only the host for my segment, but it was a lot of fun to hear everyone's take on the House of Seven Santa story. I intentionally didn't read the other parts of the story ahead of time. I waited until it came out so I could experience the story like you did. Oh, whoop, hang on. Dwayne's not done yet. His other comment is, Oh, and I've changed my stance on Die Hard. After listening to the Tis the Podcast episode, I'm now yippee ki yay Finally! Also, on a side note, have you seen Justice League? I would be interested to know your thoughts. Well, Dwayne, I'm actually a little conflicted on Justice League. Oh, come on! Justice League? I mean, it, was a, it wasn't a great movie, but I was expecting it to be awful, and it wasn't. No. Plus, they played the John Williams Superman score and the Danny Elfman Batman score. Enough! Justice League has nothing to do with Christmas. People don't want to hear about it on this podcast. Well, clearly one person did. You know what I mean. You've kept us waiting long enough. People want to know. Want to know what? Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? It's Christmas Eve in L.A. Welcome to the party, pal! Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? You did it! You said the magic words that started the segment. Is that all I had to do this whole time? Yep. You were basically Dorothy running through Oz when you had your ticket home right under your feet. But we're not here to talk about The Wizard of Oz, or Justice League, or Star Wars The Last Jedi, which I'm going to see in between recording this episode and editing this episode. No, we are here to talk about Die Hard. All year you've heard arguments from your fellow listeners about whether or not it's a Christmas movie. We heard from the Cast of the Nostalgia podcast. We heard from the Council of Christmas podcast. And we opened up the polls for you to vote so we can decide, once and for all, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Now, the voting was amazingly consistent. From the end of day one until I went to record today's show, it was a constant 60-40 split. No matter how many new votes keep coming in each day, the percentages always seem to even out. It was either like 59-41, 60-40, or 61-39, but it was always right in that area. And so, the official answer, as decided by your votes, to the question, is Die Hard a Christmas movie, is... Yippee! Kai... official the question has been answered die hard is a christmas movie finally i can go home although it occurred to me i never really weighed in with my opinion it's irrelevant now bye all right rude well i do think die hard is a christmas movie i mean there's more to it than just the date the movie takes place on i mean listen to the score it's filled with festive chimes and bells there's all sorts of touches like that throughout the movie there's a reason people have this debate about die hard and not about lethal weapon which also takes place at christmas lethal weapon is an action movie set at christmas die hard is a christmas action movie and it's not so much that i strongly believe the movie has to be a christmas movie i just never really felt the arguments against it being a christmas movie were very compelling Like, people say it's too violent, but a movie like It's a Wonderful Life has a bar brawl, war scenes, child abuse, assault on a police officer, and attempted suicide. People say Die Hard isn't really about Christmas, but the whole film takes place on Christmas Eve, whereas It's a Wonderful Life doesn't even get to Christmas Eve until more than halfway through the movie. People say that if you change the time period, it wouldn't affect the plot of Die Hard. Maybe so, but it would surely affect the tone, and it's the same for It's a Wonderful Life. If the movie had been set on the 4th of July, it would still be the story of a man learning the value of life. At the end, instead of singing Old Lang Syme, they would just sing, I don't know, My Country Tisavi or something. Even the much-beloved Linus test works just as well for Die Hard as it does for It's a Wonderful Life. Sure, there's no point in Die Hard when someone tells John McClane what Christmas is all about, but really, at no point does anyone tell George Bailey what Christmas is all about either. 
I know Brian brought It's a Wonderful Life up when he introduced the concept of the Linus test, but his example was the line about every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. But that has nothing to do with Christmas. Christmas isn't about angels getting wings. I don't recall reading this bell wing thing anywhere in the Bible, much less in the Nativity story. Basically, I'm saying Die Hard is just as much a Christmas movie as It's a Wonderful Life is. Oh, all right, all right. Now that's a you've gone too far. Hey, imaginary listener that sounds like George Bailey. You're back. Where have you been all year? I've I've been hiding from this sorry excuse for a a, a Christmas podcast. Spending all year talking about a blood-soaked action movie. What kind of Christmas is that? I don't know. I thought it was a fun debate. I mean, people seem to enjoy... But but now you've gone too far. Saying that Die Hard is a better Christmas movie than It's a Wonderful Life? You're crazy. Whoa. I never said Die Hard was better. In fact, It's a Wonderful Life is not only my favorite Christmas movie, but it's one of my favorite movies of all time, period. Well, well, well then why not spend a whole year talking about It's a Wonderful Life? Well, because I don't think I'd get many takers to debate that It's a Wonderful Life is a Christmas movie. I'm sure a lot of people would say it's their favorite Christmas movie. Well, that, that's because it is the best Christmas movie. Well, I mean, you're biased. Now, now why, why would you say that? Well, you know, because of your voice. Oh, what about my voice? Well, cause you, I mean, you sound, you you sound like you, you've, uh, I mean, it's in your neck. You know what? Forget it. I, I just don't see how you can call yourself a Christmas podcast if you're spending all this time talking about action movies while ignoring the classics. You know what, buddy? I've got an idea. Why don't we spend the rest of this episode talking about It's a Wonderful Life? Do, do, do you really mean it, Tim? I do, Bailey Guy. I've been looking for an excuse to talk about my favorite Christmas movie. The only reason I haven't done it sooner is every time I start to sit down to write about It's a Wonderful Life, I end up just watching the entire movie. I can never just watch a chunk of it. I've got to watch the whole thing. But there are quite a few interesting stories about how this movie came to be, and it works as a perfect antidote to Die Hard. There's no doubt that this is a Christmas movie. But but you just said it's as much a Christmas movie as Die Hard is. Yeah, but that's just on a technical level. On an emotional level, this movie is Christmas writ large. So let's take a look at Frank Capra's classic, It's a Wonderful Life. You sent for me, sir? Yes, Clarence. A man down on Earth needs our help. Splendid. Is he sick? No, worse. He's discouraged. At exactly 10.45 p.m. Earth time, that man will be thinking seriously of throwing away God's greatest gift. Oh, dear, dear, his life. Then I've only an hour to dress. What are they wearing now? You will spend that hour getting acquainted with George Bailey. Sir, if I should accomplish this mission, I mean, uh, might I perhaps win my wings? I've been waiting for over 200 years now, sir, and people are beginning to talk. What's that book you've got there? Oh, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Clarence, you do a good job with George Bailey, and you'll get your wings. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you. Poor George. Sit down. Sit down? What do we... If you're going to help a man, you want to know something about him, don't you? Well, naturally, of course. Well, I... keep your eyes open. Fun fact, the movie is based on a Christmas card. Well, technically. You see, author Philip Van Dornstern was trying to find a publisher for a short story, The Greatest Gift, but he couldn't find anyone willing to publish it. So he sent 200 copies to his friend and family in a 21-page booklet as Christmas cards. The story isn't exactly the same as the film. The main character in the story is George Pratt, and he goes to a bridge contemplating suicide. He's approached by a strange man. As you may have guessed, he makes it so George was never born. 
He finds out that his brother died when he fell through the ice, like in the movie, but in the book, it was an ice skating accident. Also, for some reason, he goes door-to-door selling brushes. Hmm. He eventually meets his wife, who is married to someone else, yet somehow, his son is there, and his son still looks the same. So, based on what little I know of DNA... It sounds like the kid's parentage is the same in the alternate timeline as it was in the original timeline. So if he wasn't born in the alternate timeline and the kid still looks the same, that means in the original timeline... Do you see where I'm going with this? No wonder this George is depressed in the book. Anyway, spoiler alert, he comes back to the bridge and the strange man makes it so he exists again. But then when he goes back for his happy reunion with his wife, he spots one of the brushes he was selling door-to-door sitting on the floor. So... Is the other timeline bleeding through into this reality? Are we going to have a crisis on Infinite Bedford Falls situation? Are are we ever going to get to the movie? Right, right. So, the greatest gift made its way around Hollywood, where it was snapped up by RKO. They were going to make it into a movie starring Cary Grant. Cary Grant? As no such movie exists, you can probably guess how that turned out. Well, all right then. RKO had several screenwriters work on adapting the story for the screen, but in the end, they only got three scripts that no one seemed to like. But I would be interested to see them now, because according to Frank Capra Jr., there was no Mr. Potter in any of these versions. Instead, George is shown a world where he actually did get to do the things he always wanted to do, and he became a rich but evil man. In another script, Good George and Bad George have a climactic fight on the bridge at the end, and Good George kills Evil George. I know that's nothing like the film we all know and love, but tell me you don't want to see that just a little bit. I I do not want to see that. Not even a little bit. Well, the mid-1940s studio system agreed with you, so the story sat around doing nothing for a year. During this time, World War II was coming to an end, and many of America's armed forces were coming home, including a guy who worked in the U.S. Army Signal Corps, a fellow by the name of Frank Capra. Capra was interested in the greatest gift story, so RKO sold it to him to be the first picture from his new production company, Liberty Films. That's why there's that big bell at the beginning and end of the movie. It's the only time you'll see that logo unless you happen to catch the only other Liberty Films production, State of the Union. But more on that later. So, RKO sold Capra the rights and threw in the three scripts. Capra hired husband and wife screenwriting team Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett to use what they could from the scripts and adapt the story into a movie. Although the final result is magical, apparently the writing process wasn't. In a New York Times article from 2001, Albert talks about being upset that Capra and another screenwriter, Joe Swirling, were rewriting what the Hacketts wrote without telling them. Also, for all his genius, apparently Frank Capra could be a bit condescending. Albert says, Once our agent called and said, Capra wants to know how soon you'll be finished. Francis said, We're finished right now. We put our pens down and we never went back to it. Capra was definitely passionate about his work. You know the scene in It's a Wonderful Life where George goes nuts and knocks a bunch of stuff off his tables and kicks a few things to the ground? Capra put that scene in there because he had done the same thing once in his own home over frustrations on a script he was working on. So anyway, Capra hired two more writers, and eventually the script was finished. What he needed now was actors. Fortunately, someone else had just come home from the war, and he was anxious to get back in front of the camera, particularly with Capra at the helm. It was Airman Jimmy Stewart. Now we're talking! But apparently, Frank didn't do an amazing job of pitching the movie to Jimmy Stewart. And I just got a phone call one day at Capra, and he said, I have an idea for a story, why don't you come down, and, and I'll, uh, I'll tell, tell it to you. Well, I couldn't get down there quick enough, and I sat down, and he said, you're a uh, fellow in a small town. Mary, I know what I'm going to do tomorrow, and the next day, and next year, and a year after that. I'm shaking the dust of this crummy little town off my feet, and I'm going to see the world. Yeah, then you get married, and you have all these kids. Hello, Daddy. Hello, Daddy. And your father dies, and you have to take over the building alone. 
three, two, one, bingo! <laughs> we made it, Commodore Eustis, we made it. Look, look, we're still in business. We've still got two bucks left. And, uh... Finally, if you were going to kill yourself, you are going to jump off a bridge. And an angel by the name of Clarence, he comes down to help you, but uh, he can't swim. Help! So you go down and uh, save the... He said, this, this really doesn't sound very good, does it? I said, Frank, if you, want, if you want me to be in a picture about a guy that wants to kill himself, and an angel comes down named Clarence, and... He can't swim, and I saved. I, I, when do we start? Oh, you know what? I, I hear it now. I still say it would be amazing to watch good Jimmy Stewart and evil Jimmy Stewart slug it out on the bridge. But anyway, when it came time to cast George's wife, Mary, Capra went with an actress who had never been the lead in a film before, but had impressed him very much in her supporting role in the film They Were Expendable. Talking, of course, about Donna Reed. Fun fact, my dad had a huge crush on Donna Reed, and I don't blame him. She is so wonderful in this film. There's a scene in the film where George and Mary are tossing rocks at an old house. They brought in a stunt person to throw the rocks for Donna Reed, but she surprised everyone with her superior throwing skills. That's my girl! One of Stuart and Reed's biggest scenes was supposed to be much different. I'll let Tom Bosley explain. Oh, uh, wait, the, the dad from Happy Days? Yep. W what does he have to do with anything? He hosted a documentary about It's a Wonderful Life that's on the DVD. Oh. Okay, well, why, why'd they choose him? I don't know. Can we just play the clip? Oh, uh, sure, sure. In another sequence, Capra faced an unexpected snag when Jimmy Stewart became extremely reluctant to kiss Donna Reed in the now famous telephone scene. He kept asking Capra to delay this scene and shoot others instead. Stewart complained that he'd been away from the cameras too long for such a hot and heavy scene. A fella gets rusty, he said. Well, finally, Capper insisted on shooting the scene, but just to make sure Stewart didn't back out, he restaged it so that Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed had to share the phone. Stewart and Reed shot the scene as directed in one take. When the take was finished, Capper was satisfied, but the script girl had a problem. She said, yeah, it was fine, all right, except they'd left out a whole page of dialogue. Capper replied, with technique like that, who needs dialogue? Predit. <laughs> See, that makes sense now that I know that there's a page of dialogue missing, because I always thought it was way too quick of a turn from when George Bailey is saying all these kind of angry, not nice things to Mary, and then all of a sudden they're kissing. Like, I feel like he should, there should be more, a little more wooing there, and I imagine that was what's in the page that's missing. But anyway, while the adult George and Mary are amazing, I also want to give a shout out to the younger versions of George and Mary. They do a really good job of setting those characters up before we even see Stuart and Reed. Particularly the scene at the drugstore between young George and the druggist, Mr. Gower. That scene makes me cry every time. Every time. In fact, I'm not even going to put the audio of the clip in this show because it'll make me cry when I watch it again. But that little kid has to really do the heavy lifting of the emotion in that scene and he pulls it off beautifully. I was surprised that kid didn't go on to do more work in the movies. His name was Bobby Anderson, and he was in a handful of films after It's a Wonderful Life, but then he went on to do more work behind the camera as an assistant director and a producer. Speaking of the kids in the movie, let's talk about Zuzu. Carolyn Grimes was the young actress who played Zuzu. She actually didn't see the movie until she was 40 years old. My goodness, what's going on here? And then I started getting fan mail. And I'm 40 years old. I haven't thought about the movie industry because I was orphaned at the age of 15 and sent back to Missouri. So, uh, you know, that was a part of my past I rarely thought about. And all of a sudden, fan mail? So I have to admit that I actually sat down 
and I watched the movie when I was 40 years old. <laughs> First time I ever saw it. And I really felt like it was a piece of film history at that time. I knew what they were talking about, and I feel so grateful that I was a part of that film. She has really embraced that role as an adult. She does a lot of interviews every Christmas, and in every single one I saw, someone makes her say that line. Wait, before you leave, though, we have to, I mean, uh, it's been so nice to have you on the couch, but we have—we happen to have this bell. Oh. We were wondering if you might be able to do a little recreation. Do you remember that line from being six years old? I think so. Okay, okay do you want to do it? Daddy? Teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. Yeah, that's beautiful. You would think that she'd be like Alan Rickman's character in Galaxy Quest at this point, just sick to death of that line. But no, Carolyn seems to really relish her role as an ambassador for this beloved film. Fun fact, you know that part in the film where George and Mary are doing the Charleston contest and the floor opens up and they fall in the swimming pool? Well, the guy who opens the floor is the same actor who played Alfalfa in the R Gang series of shorts. And that pool and retractable floor is totally real. It's part of Beverly Hills High School. What wasn't real was the town of Bedford Falls. The entire town was a set built on the RKO studio lot. They used the set instead of filming on location for two reasons. The first is that Capra liked to have the maximum amount of control over his environment. But the second reason is, this is essentially an alternate reality movie. At one point, George walks through town and Bedford Falls has become Pottersville and everything has changed. You couldn't do that in a real town. Couldn't just rip down storefronts and paint them up as something else. I mean, you could, but it'd be way more expensive. But I always thought the scene where George wanders through the alternate Bedford Falls reminded me a lot of the scene in Back to the Future, where Marty first arrives in 1955. I later found out that director Robert Zemeckis was heavily influenced by It's a Wonderful Life. With as beloved a film as It's a Wonderful Life is, it has inspired many filmmakers over the years. It has also inspired many myths. One of them being that Sesame Street characters Bert and Ernie are named after the cop and cab driver characters in It's a Wonderful Life. You're not gonna tell me that's not true. Afraid so. Legendary Muppeteer, the late Jerry Jewell, was quoted in the SF Gate as saying, I was the head writer for the Muppets for 36 years and one of the original writers on Sesame Street. The rumor about It's a Wonderful Life has persisted over the years. I was not present at the naming, but I was always positive it was incorrect. Despite his many talents, Jim had no memory for details like this. He knew the movie, of course, but would not have remembered the cop and the cab driver. I was not able to confirm this with Jim before he died, but shortly thereafter, I spoke to John Stone, Sesame Street's first producer and head writer, and a man largely responsible for the show's format. John, sadly, is no longer with us either. He assured me that Ernie and Bert were named one day when he and Jim were studying prototype puppets. They decided one of them looked like an Ernie, and the other one looked like a Bert. The movie character names are purely coincidental. Well, that's disappointing. Why? Can't it be just as fun that it's a coincidence? Well, I guess. Another misconception about It's a Wonderful Life is that it bombed at the box office when it first released. Well, well, that's true. You hear that all the time. No, it's an exaggeration. The film didn't bomb. It just fell short of expectations and didn't make back its budget, which was quite sizable for 1946. It's kind of like the current movie Justice League. It didn't bomb at the box office. It'll probably make half a billion dollars before it's done. But it certainly fell well short of expectations and probably won't break even at the box office. Did he manage to bring up Justice League again? Uh, oh, yeah, he's kind of all over the place. Oh, boy. Part of the problem was the marketing. They really didn't know how to sell this picture. It's the same problem Frank Capra had when he was trying to pitch the idea to Jimmy Stewart. It's hard to explain why it's so good. They tried selling it as a romantic comedy, and while there are certainly some romance and some laughs here and there, it's certainly not your typical romantic comedy. 
But the people who saw the film certainly liked it. It was nominated for several Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actor. It even won a technical Oscar for creating a new kind of fake snow. So it wasn't some movie that everybody hated. It just kind of failed to light the world on fire like it did in later years. Which brings me to another myth. Supposedly, the reason the film got so popular was that TV stations could play it for free. Now wait just a minute, I know that one's true. For years, the movie would be on all the time during the holidays. Sometimes you would change the channel and it would be on multiple channels at the same time. Well, it is true that due to a clerical error in 1974, the copyright on the film was not renewed. Then the film entered the public domain and TV stations didn't have to ask permission to show it. But according to Wikipedia, despite the lapsed copyright, television stations that aired it were still required to pay royalties. Ah. They got a cited source for that? Um, not so much. All right, yeah, maybe don't take that one as fact quite yet. And if it's in the public domain, it's free. And It's a Wonderful Life is in the public domain. It was. I I beg your pardon? It was in the public domain. It's not anymore? Nope. Republic Pictures owns the rights. I I thought the company was called Liberty Films. Oh, that was Frank Capra's company. They actually lost a not insignificant amount of money since the film underperformed, and eventually Liberty Films went away. National Telefilm Associates acquired some of their assets and then changed their name to Republic Pictures and were later bought out by Viacom. I I have no idea what you just said. Well, the important part is, when Republic Pictures was still Republic Pictures, they sued for the rights to It's a Wonderful Life. You see, they owned the rights to the story, The Greatest Gift. So they argued that even though the rights to the film weren't renewed, the film was still a derivative work of something they owned the copyright to. Therefore, they still hold ownership of that derivative work. You're making less sense the more you speak. That's probably true, but the court sided with Republic Pictures, and now they, slash Viacom, own the rights to It's a Wonderful Life. They made an exclusive deal with NBC for the broadcast rights. That's why you don't see it on other channels anymore. Well, well that's a shame. Now the very reason it's become a classic has, has been taken away. True, but I don't think it's in danger of unbecoming a classic. AFI's listed it twice in the top 20 movies of all time, and number one on their list of most inspirational movies of all time. Frank Capra, Jimmy Stewart, and Donna Reed have all said they think it's the best movie they ever made. Frank Capra went a step further and said it was the best movie that anyone ever made. Well, that, that's quite a big step. Yeah. Yeah. My point is, it's time in the public domain and its exposure to audiences accomplished what it needed to. It cemented this film in the minds of generations as a classic. No amount of copyright lawsuits or exclusive TV deals can take that away. There's only one thing that bothers me about this film. What? What What bothers you? I thought you said it was one of your favorite films. Well, it is, but I mean, I'm a Star Trek fan. We have the ability to love something and also nitpick it to death. My problem with It's a Wonderful Life is the ending. You mean when the town comes together to help George? How can that bother you? No, it's not what we see at the end that bothers me. It's what we don't see. Mr. Potter gets away with essentially stealing $8,000 from the Bailey building and loan. There are no consequences for him. That jerk spews pure evil on two whole generations of the Bailey family and gets no comeuppance. Now, apparently, Frank Capra got more letters about that than anything else in the movie. People wanted to see Potter punished, and I am definitely one of those people. Thankfully, our wish was sort of granted by a Saturday Night Live sketch. I had it in a newspaper. I remember giving it to someone. Well, who, who, who'd you give it to? No, wait. Now, I just called Clarence at the bank. He told me that old man Potter deposited exactly $8,000 right after I left. It was he! 
for. Let's go get it. Where are you? You're in enough trouble already. You made one mistake, Mr. Potter. You double-crossed me and you left me alive. Now, wait just a second. I'll give you the money back. I don't want the money. I want a piece of you, Potter. The scene ends with George, Mary, and Harry, played by Dana Carvey, Jan Hooks, and Dennis Miller, respectively, pounding on Potter like he's a pinata for a good minute and a half. Ah, uh, does your heart good to watch it. I like to imagine that's what really happened right after they finished singing Old Lang Syme. Well, that's not very Christmassy. I know, I'm getting a lot of that today. And it certainly goes against the spirit of the film. But Potter is just such a bad guy. I want to see bad things happen to him. Although the FBI thought Potter was too much of a bad guy. Apparently, they thought It's a Wonderful Life was communist propaganda because according to a 1947 FBI memo, quote, With regard to the picture It's a Wonderful Life, Redacted stated in substance that the film represented rather obvious attempts to discredit bankers by casting Lionel Barrymore as a Scrooge type so that he would be the most hated man in the picture. This, according to sources, is a common trick used by communists. In addition, Redacted stated that in his opinion, the picture deliberately maligned the upper class, attempting to show people who had money were mean and despicable characters. Redacted related that if he made the picture portraying the banker, he would have shown the individual to have been following the rules as laid down by the state bank examiner in connection with making loans. Further, Redacted stated that the scene wouldn't have suffered at all in portraying the banker as a man who was protecting funds put in his care by private individuals and adhering to the rules governing the loan of money rather than portraying the part as it was shown. In summary, Redacted stated that it was not necessary to make the banker such a mean character, and I would never have done it that way. Oh, wow. Yeah, the FBI took quite a leap, right? Yeah, that and, and your impression of the FBI guy is, uh, uh, interesting. Well, yeah, well, I just hope the person at the FBI didn't pull a hamstring when he was writing that memo, because it was quite a stretch. But as we bring this discussion to a close, I thought I should reflect on why this is my favorite Christmas movie. Because it's only been my favorite movie for about five years. That was the first time I actually sat down and watched it from beginning to end as an adult. After that scene with young George at the drugstore, I was hooked. I was so invested in these characters, you would think they were my own family. I was amazed at how little of the story I actually knew. I thought I'd seen the movie, but all I really knew was from when Clarence shows up onwards. You do realize you've been talking about this movie this whole time, and this is the first time you actually brought up the guardian angel by name? You're right. Maybe I could have spent a year talking about this movie because I really do love it. And I implore you at home to make some time to actually watch it this year. Not have it on at a party or while you're cleaning the house, but actually sit down and give this movie your attention. It's so worth it. And Linus Tester, no, it will fill you with the Christmas spirit. Right, imaginary listener that sounds kind of like George Bailey? You, you, you betcha. In fact, no, I'm going to go watch it right now. See you later. Yeah! Hello, Bedford Falls! Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas, George! Merry Christmas, movie house! Merry Christmas, Emporium! Merry Christmas, you wonderful Billy alone! That's going to do it for our show. Thank you for listening. Be sure to head to can'twaitforchristmaspod.com to tell me your thoughts on It's a Wonderful Life. Let me know if I left out any interesting facts. Also, be sure to click on our link for allthingschristmas.com to check out those snowflake crafts and all the other great stuff they have on that site. And I hope to be back in touch with you soon. Maybe you'll catch me on the December 18th episode of the Nostalgia Podcast, my live show at Rooster Feathers on December 22nd, or on Kringle Radio December 23rd and 24th at noon Pacific time. 
Of course, check your podcast feed on December 22nd, because now that the imaginary listener who sounds kind of like George Bailey is back, I'm sure the Can't Wait for Christmas podcast gang is going to put on another bonus episode for you. Well, it seems I've got a lot to plan for, so I'm going to go merrily mosey on out of here, but until next time, keep laughing all the way. Christmas, 1983. Actually, Dad, it's 2017. Oh. Oh, oh, oh. Thank you for listening to the Can't Wait for Christmas podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to us on iTunes, or we're available on Stitcher and Google Play as well. If you'd like to leave a comment on this or any episode, go to our official website at can'twaitforchristmaspod.com. While you're there, you'll find a link to our official Zazzle store, where you can grab customizable t-shirts, ornaments, bumper stickers, and all sorts of other Christmas merchandise all year long. You can also connect with us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash can'twaitforchristmaspod. Or on Twitter, we are at ChristmasPod. Or you could always send us an email directly at Christmas at TanCast.com. The Can't Wait for Christmas podcast is part of the TanCast Podcast Network. We Wish You a Merry Christmas was performed by the United States Marine Corps Band. And this amazing version of Jingle Bells on the Accordion was performed by the wonderful and talented Kristen Nowicki. All other music and sounds used in this episode are the properties of their individual copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Okay, boys, did I forget anything? God bless us, everyone. Welcome to the show! Hey, I don't need headphones anymore. Get those out of my ears. There we go. Now I'm free and easy. I can move about. Skibbledy whip whip a skibbledy woo. A skibbledy whip whip. Hey, 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 headphones. Don't be banging against the thing. You're going to ruin, ruin the audio. All right. Simmer down now. It's 1.15 in the morning. Let's try and get this as accurate as possible. They posted an article a while back. I got a popcorn kernel. I got dislodged and now it's swimming around in my mouth while I'm trying to talk and I can't get it. Like it's dislodged but it's stuck to the roof of my mouth. Oh, sorry. Oh. It's, it's, it's right by my uvula. I'm 90% sure I used the correct terminology there. Uvula. Mevula? No, uvula. No. Oh. Get that one. Wait, no. Wait, wait, don't you get this? The no, hand one? You go back. This one right here? Yeah. Oh, these are just advertisements. Oh. No. 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 Ah, finally got the kernel. Boom. People say Die Hard isn't really about Christmas, but the whole film takes place on Christmas Eve. Whereas It's a Wonderful Wife, It's a Wonderful Wife, that's the gal sleeping in the bed right now. She's my wonderful wife. All right, oh, oh, all right. Oh, I, I almost, it's been so long, I forgot how to do the voice. I just don't see how you can call yourself a Christmas podcast if you're spending all this time talking about action movies while enjoying... I just don't see how you can call yourself a Christmas podcast if you spend all this time talking about... All the time talking. The impression really comes and goes. The longer the sentence is, the less likely it sounds like George Bailey for most of it. If it's in the public domain, it's free. And It's a Wonderful Life is in the public domain.
<laughs> what? <laughs> that impression just fell apart. All right, say goodbye. Bye. Thanks, guys. Fun. And now it's time for bed. Yay! Your favorite thing. You're recording yourself. I'm recording everything. That's boring. Is boring? Kinda. <laughs> so you're still recording yourself. I'm recording you too. Ah, uh, darn it. <laughs> All right, I'll stop. Ready? Yeah. And stop.